Amen. As the offering plates are being taken, I want to take a moment and just thank those who have participated in leading us in worship. It's a blessing to be able to celebrate God's goodness and uh, just to be able to have such talented people who will sacrifice their time every week to be able to uh, make things happen. I'm very grateful for Daly's leadership and all of the other folks who are involved with that. So thank you all very much for being a part of that. Um, it is a blessing to be able to worship with you today, to be able to celebrate God's goodness and to be able to rejoice, which is going to be the theme of the message this morning, that we should rejoice. Uh, part of the reason why we are called to rejoice is because we have something that the rest of the world does not have, and that is Jesus Christ. We have a hope that others do not have. We have a peace that passes all understanding. And it is our privilege as the body of Christ to be able to rejoice together, to be able to celebrate what he has done and what he continues to do. Uh, I was talking with Richard beforehand this morning, and there are times we come across names and words in the Bible that we don't use anymore. And you ask the question, how do you pronounce that? And honestly, most of the time we just make it up. But if you sound confident, everybody thinks that you know that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, I only share that with you because I may pronounce it different from what Richard did, and it's not because he's wrong and I'm right. It's just because I'm doing the best I can with it as well as anybody else. So uh, I would like for us just to start by reading some scripture. It comes from Philippians chapter 4 this morning, and Philippians chapter 4, specifically verses 1 through 6. Our focus is going to be verses 4 through 6 later, but it's beneficial for us to at least see what's happening around the passage this morning. It begins with this, beginning in Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia... And I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, this is an interesting passage, as it seems almost out of place when you begin to look at all of the things that the Apostle Paul has written in to the first three chapters of Philippians. Remember that Paul has been encouraging the church in very broad terms. He's talked about the need for a holy discontentment. That was the message a couple weeks ago about working out our salvation through God's grace, not by our ability, but through the grace of Jesus Christ and all sorts of other great truths. And then suddenly he brings up two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, or Syntyche, or whatever you want to call her. I'm going to call her Cynthia today, so that's just easier for me, so that's what we're going with. Apparently, they had been in the midst of some sort of disagreement, and we know nothing regarding what the disagreement was about, but it was clearly something worth discussion for Paul. And to paraphrase, he basically tells them, you need to work it out. 
He even calls upon others to help them in this process of working it out. He says, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. You have to wonder, why would Paul worry himself with two ladies that had a little bit of a disagreement with each other? The primary reason for this is he knows that a divided church is a bad witness. Where people see in a church anger and dissension and inability to reconcile and the holding of grudges, what they don't see is the beauty of Christ. So obviously, the first reason is to represent Christ well. He wanted them to be able to be unified. It doesn't mean that they'll agree on everything. It doesn't mean that everyone will be on the same page with everything. It doesn't mean that they'll like the same things, but rather it simply means that they will represent Christ well. They won't let petty things get in the way of them being a model for the rest of the church and the rest of the outside world. But there's a second reason that we find in these next few verses. He immediately goes into a discussion of joy and peace. Clearly, he's suggesting that the way we handle our relationships with one another has a direct impact on our joy. Sticking to our relational guns, holding grudges, giving people what they deserve, all of those things may give us a smug sense of satisfaction, but they will not produce real, deep, abiding joy. But when the body of Christ genuinely pursues Christ above all else, builds one another up so that all of us may walk in the grace of Christ and loves even those whom we disagree with, the result will be a deep sense of joy. When you see others who have struggled and to see them come and to grow and to be the people that God called them to be, even if you may still feel like you're not getting as far along as you would like, to see the fruit of the work as you see the body of Christ coming together, what happens is all of a sudden you begin to realize, man, this does matter. This does make a difference. To see individuals who at one time were enslaved with some type of addiction, to see them set free and walking in victory and celebrating the work that God is doing inside of you, there will be a sense of deep joy as well. It should be noted that he's not talking about happiness, but joy. Happiness is an emotion that is typically associated with your current situation. So in other words, you can have a good situation sitting in front of you and you feel good about it. You look at your bank account, there's money, you think, yeah, this is great, I'm very happy today. You go for your physical and the doctor says, everything's great, you're going to live a long life, everything's good. You think, yeah, that makes me very happy, I'm glad to hear that. Happiness is directly associated often with the situations that we face, but true joy is a state of mind, a state of being that is driven not by our circumstances, but our confidence in the God who holds all things together. So in other words, there may be times that you may not experience great happiness, but you can still experience the joy of Christ in knowing that he is still there with you. 
Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he emphasizes, he says, again, I will say, rejoice. Is it possible for us to always rejoice? Because that's what he calls us to, rejoice in the Lord always. Is it really possible to always rejoice? The story is told of Horatio. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a very large family. He had a wife named Anna and five children, one son and four daughters. However, they were not strangers to tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871. In that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God in his mercy allowed the business to flourish once more. On November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner Villa de Havre was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were his wife and their four daughters. He had been delayed by business and he told his wife that he would join her and the children in Europe a few days later. He had planned to take another ship. About four days into the crossing, however, the Ville du Havre collided with a Scottish ship. A total of 226 of the 313 passengers were killed, including Horatio's four daughters. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of wreckage. It was Anna. Horatio's wife, still alive. He pulled her into the boat and they were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message which began, saved alone, what shall I do? Consider the loss that they have experienced. Not long ago, they lost their son to pneumonia. Now they have lost all four of their daughters to a shipwreck. Horatio booked a passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Horatio to his cabin and told him they were over the place where the children went down. It was in this place and on this night that Horatio Spafford wrote a song that we sang earlier this morning. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could a man who had lost so much write a song like that? Certainly it wasn't because the death of his children brought happiness into his life. His circumstances would not have led to happiness, yet Horatio Spafford had confidence in the God of the universe. He knew that God was still in control, although his circumstances were not what he had longed for. Even though things were happening that certainly he never planned to take place, he knew that God was still in control and God would not leave him in the midst of this dark valley. It is likely that Horatio Spafford was familiar with Psalm 139 where David declares, O Lord, you have examined my heart 
and you know everything about me. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. He knew that he was still in the hands of an almighty God. And I tell you, when you begin to experience loss, it's so easy to forget that God is still faithful even in those dark times. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we get a glimpse of the heart of one going through tragedy. It's David, the one who is often referred to as a man after God's own heart. But David, a man after God's own heart, was also a sinful man. His sin resulted in the birth of a child, and this child would become deathly ill. In verses 16 and 17, we read, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. Eventually, this child would die. The one that David had prayed so feverishly for, this child would die And his advisors, his friends, didn't want to tell him. They've seen his passionate sorrow as he sought the Lord and his miraculous power that apparently never came in this situation. If he prayed so feverishly for the healing of this boy, if he was so passionate in his weeping and his sorrow, how would he respond when he finds that his son has died? Well... David's no dummy, and he sees them talking. And as he sees them talking, he simply says, Has my son died? And they confirmed, Yes, he has. And then we're told in verse 20, David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Did David somehow forget his sorrow? How could he move so quickly from passionately praying for God's miracle that seemed to never come to a time of worship? It is because David trusted in the sovereignty of God. He knew that although things were not going his way, God was still in control. As a result, he could experience joy in the midst of sorrow. I don't know the challenges you face today or the challenges that you have faced to get you to this point. Some of you have experienced more sorrow than anybody ever ought to have to experience. However, you can still walk in the joy of Christ regardless of what has gotten you here because he is still faithful. He never promised you that everything would be easy, but he has promised that he will always be with you. He would never leave you nor forsake you. And he will keep that promise. Do you know why I know that? Because he's kept every other promise he's ever made. There will be times that you struggle, but he will always be there to walk with you. Well, Paul goes on to talk in our passage here in Philippians again about a gentle or a reasonable type of joy. The NIV says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Yet according to author Henry Alford, a more literal translation would be reasonable or focusing not on what is legally right, but rather reasoning or considering others first. Now, as we connect the dots here, I want you to consider where we began in this passage this morning. 
you've got two ladies who are fighting with each other. Both are quote-unquote godly women. We don't know them personally other than their reference here. We never hear about them. Yet they see things very different from one another. A part of us, when faced with a situation like this, we want to hit the gas pedal. We want to drive our point home until the other individual relents and decides to see things our way. Some of you I could hear kind of giggling at that point because you've done that at times. But Paul wants them to consider each other first. He wants us to see things through God's eyes and not our own. When we look at things through God's eyes, our entire perspective begins to change. Do you remember the story of Joseph from the Old Testament? He's the one who was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers hated him because of the fact that basically dad loved him more than dad loved them. At times he shared dreams with them where he told them about the day coming where uh, they would all be bowing down around him, and that didn't necessarily endear him to his brothers. And the opportunity comes for them to sell their brother into slavery, he ends up as a slave in Egypt, and of course, God is still with him. Again, even though we walk through dark valleys, God does not leave us or abandon us. And in Joseph's situation, God would even lift him up. God would take him from a position as a slave to being one who is in charge of everything in the household. Then he ends up a prisoner. God would put him in charge of everything in the prison. And then God would even remove him from the prison and he would put him in charge as the second in command over everything in Egypt. It's a pretty faithful God. At times he might have questioned, God, why is this happening to me? It didn't make sense. You, you figure he had been faithful. It was frustrating at times, but God had a plan all the way through. Well, to make a long story short, by the end of his time as being second in command, a group of people have come to him looking for help. It's actually a, a family that doesn't live too far from Egypt, and they've heard that there is food in Egypt, and they need some of that food. Wouldn't you know it? That group of people were his brothers. The same ones who had sold him into slavery. And although they do not recognize him right away, he knows exactly who they are. Joseph, although he does toy with them a little bit, Joseph still shows them incredible grace. And he actually provides for their needs. And in Genesis chapter 50, at the end of their father's life, the father is about to die, the brothers are still afraid for their lives, and they come to Joseph, and they're basically saying, Joseph, our father wouldn't like it if you killed us now. <laughs> it's probably true, but the point was this. Joseph responds with probably one of the most beautiful verses of scripture. In Genesis 50, 20, he says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, Joseph saw things the way God saw them. Yes, his brothers were horrible people. Yes, they had done horrible things. And if they got what they deserved, all of them would have been killed. However, Joseph realized that God had a plan that had been in place all along. And God had been using 
the unfair treatment he received to set Joseph up to literally be able to be the instrument of saving not just hundreds of lives, but thousands of lives. God is faithful. Joseph simply needed to know that God had a plan. Do you know today that God has a plan for you? I'm sorry that some of you have lost your job unfairly. But what if God is somehow in that hardship, moving you to another place where you need to be? I'm sorry that somebody else has hurt you. But what if God showed up in the hardship to make you a tool of healing towards someone else? I'm sorry that you or others have made sinful choices that seem to bring nothing but pain and regret. Yet what if through those choices, God showed up and he transformed not only your life, but the lives of others? I'm sorry that your relationship has become strained. But what if in the midst of disagreement, like Euodia and Cynthia, whatever her name is, you and your friend can both grow closer to Christ than ever before? You know what? Stuff happens. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but in the midst of it, God can take all of it. He causes all things to work together for the good of God and those who are called according to his purpose. That means when something great happens, God is in it. When something bad happens, God is in it. God can use even the worst circumstances and turn it into something amazing for you and for me. Do we trust That when bad things happen, God has not abandoned us. I guarantee you, he is still faithful to you regardless of your circumstance. Earlier, we sang a song that is simply called the doxology. Churches used to sing it every single Sunday. There are several such songs that are taken directly from the scriptures. And these songs identify words that we believe about God. One is found in Romans chapter 11. Let me read a few verses of this particular doxology to you. It begins in verse 34. It actually begins earlier, but I'm beginning in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I don't know why you've had to walk the path that you've had to walk. But I know that when God is in the midst of it, he can turn your pain and your heartache and your sorrow and your disagreement into something wonderful. Let me close with one last idea. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 32. As he writes, he's in prison not for doing anything wrong. In fact, all he was doing was being faithful to God's call to him. God had given him a message. He was to call the people of Israel to repentance. They had been blessed for a time, and as a part of that blessing, they became complacent, and they stopped pursuing the Lord. And as they stopped pursuing the Lord, God became angry. He wanted to hold them accountable, so he sends Jeremiah to give them this message. Repent, or God will actually bring judgment upon them. Well, 
What do you do when you hear a message like that? You're blessed, so everything must be good. So you must assume that this prophet, this man, supposedly man of God, is not really a man of God. What do you do with a guy like that? Well, you either kill him or you put him in prison. They put Jeremiah in prison. Why? So he would shut up. So they didn't have to hear him anymore. There's a problem, though. Jeremiah was speaking the truth. The prophecy would come true. Within a few months, the Chaldeans would overtake Jerusalem, and Jeremiah finds himself captive alongside all those who imprisoned him, refusing to repent. Now, can you imagine the different ways that Jeremiah could have handled this situation? Certainly, he could have played the I told you so card, and all of us have heard that and seen that. Maybe we've even played that card at some point. We made a decision, and one individual was very adamant this is the right way, and somewhere along the way, we decided to go the other direction. And then you hear that phrase, I told you so. Everybody hates that. I've seen it with marriages at times uh, where a husband and wife will make a decision. As they make that decision, uh, basically they... Uh, the, the husband, I'm going to make the husband the bad guy in this particular illustration. The husband says we should do it this way. The wife says we should do it this way. They decide whatever decision we make, we'll make it together. And they go with the wife's choice and it doesn't work out. And the husband says, I told you so. Actually, you agreed to the decision that was made. So you're responsible as well. Jeremiah could have used the I told you so card. Or he could have actually gone to God almost with a sense of bitterness. God, why are you allowing this to happen? I was faithful. These are the ones. They deserve it because they could have repented and they chose not to. He could have blamed them for the situation that they were in. But Jeremiah chooses yet a different option. In the midst of oppression, in the midst of Great turmoil emotionally. He is enslaved. He is imprisoned now with the same people that put him in prison because he told them the truth and they could have gotten out of it. This is what he does in verse 17. He says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. He could have chosen the I told you so. He could have chosen the blame game. He could have been angry with God, but instead he chooses to worship. He takes this as an opportunity to simply draw near to God in spite of the circumstances that he faced. In his moment of greatest trial, he saw God as present and therefore he could still rejoice. He could worship. My question is, can you do the same today? I don't know the things that are going on in your life, but do you know that God is present even now? Some of us had property damage this week. It was a scary thing for many folks. Came through very, very quickly. Many people could have been hurt or even killed. But God was in it. 
as we walked down to Mike Rhodes' house. In order to get there, you had to uh, walk through a couple people's yards because there were trees that were down across the road. One of the uh, paths was blocked by some power lines, so we walked through on the right side where we actually had to climb over a tree and do some other stuff to get through there. One of the neighbors came out, and uh, he was just checking to make sure we were okay. He didn't care that we were in his yard. And he made the statement. He said, God is good. He said, not a single tree fell on my house. And my very first thought is, God is good whether a tree fell on your house or not. God's goodness and his faithfulness is not dependent on the circumstances we face today. He is faithful and he will be there and he will walk through whatever journeys we have to walk through, regardless of how alone we may feel. He is there. Can you rejoice in your present circumstances? If not, maybe you need to know who's walking with you today. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, I pray that you would change our perspective. Lord, it's so easy for us to, to look at our situation, our circumstances, and to be overwhelmed by what we face today and what we anticipate facing tomorrow. Lord, regardless of our circumstance, help us to look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the situations and the circumstances of our lives, the people that you place in front of us. Help us to see these things and these people through your eyes, to recognize that Maybe we need to walk through some of these journeys so that we can be prepared to be used by you in a mighty way. But we don't know why hardship happens in our lives. Sometimes it happens because of our own choices. Sometimes it happens because of the choices of others. Sometimes it happens merely because we are in a fallen world. Lord, regardless of our circumstances today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you in the midst of those circumstances. I pray that you would fill us with an incredible joy. Give us a peace that passes all understanding and knowing that even though these times may be difficult, we are not alone. But we have a God who will always be faithful. There will be times that we will struggle. There will be times that things happen that we don't want to see but you are there with us. Lord, help us to simply rejoice in your faithfulness today. Lord, I pray that you would be honored in us as we worship you, not just here, but every moment of our lives in the midst of those circumstances, when things go wrong, when people die, when storms come, when people fight. Lord, help us to worship you, to rejoice over your presence. We will give you praise for what you do in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, what's interesting is normally when we think about a message on rejoicing, the last thing we want to talk about is those hard things that happen in our lives. But rejoicing and spending time in the joy of Christ is not something you turn on and turn off based on your circumstances. Again, that's happiness. We're talking about the joy of Christ. My prayer is that every person in here today will know the joy of Christ, regardless of your situation. I pray that God will work in you, and he will bless you, and he will use you as you are his instrument this week. Go 
with the peace of God.